we turn once again this morning to the book of 2 Samuel, I trust that 2 Samuel is now beginning to be familiar to you. We're going to be looking this morning at the second section of chapter 5. Two weeks ago we looked at the first part of chapter 5 in which David was anointed king over all of Israel. And this morning we'll look at verses 17 through 25 as we see David the king going off to war against the Philistines. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Samuel 5, beginning at verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I, certain, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him, and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would use your word mightily in our lives. That as we study your word, we would learn more of who you are. We would know more of ourselves. And most of all, that we would know your sovereign impact upon our lives. Lord, we ask this morning that you would bless us, that we might see the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. We often hear the phrase that believers are engaged in a battle. It can come in the form of thinking about a culture war that is spread throughout our nation. Or perhaps even closer to home, there have been examples during the pandemic, stories of churches that were shut down while casinos remained opened. And so we think... Why is our society, our government, our culture fighting against the church? Even more frequently, we hear of attempts to compel Christians to act 
against their beliefs. Christian pharmacists are forced to prescribe abortifacients. Christian counselors are forced to give certain kinds of treatments that are considered wise by the world. As believers, we need to realize and recognize that there is a battle going on. And we need to avoid two common errors with respect to it. The first error is to ignore the battle and the world's animosity toward God, to pretend as if it doesn't exist. But the second error is to think that we are helpless against the world, that the world has mighty powers arrayed against us, and that we have no hope of victory. The reality is that the Lord knows there is a battle, and that He is the one who fights for His people. And so this morning, as we consider our text of David warring against the Philistines, I would like us to see two things. The first thing that I would like us to see is the enemies of God attack. That the enemies of God are on the offensive. They are attacking the people of God. And then the second thing I would like us to see is that it is the Lord who fights for His people. The Lord fights for His people. Let's begin then by looking at verse 17 and the enemies of God on the attack. Now we pick up this story here in the middle of chapter 5. But you will recall that two weeks ago we said that chapter 5 is not set forth strictly chronologically. That this section of text that we have before us this morning probably occurs after verse 3. After David has been recently anointed the king over all of Israel. It happens before David's taking of Jerusalem, before his building up of that fortress, and before Hiram, king of Tyre, sends tribute. So that's where we are. David has just been anointed king over all of Israel. The civil war is now finally over. But there has been a major change here. The change is that now Israel is not two kingdoms, but one. And she has but one king, David. Now notice how God's enemies react to this news in verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. They waste no time at all. There is an immediate hostility and a move against David. Now do not forget the background to this moment. The Philistines had soundly defeated Israel. Israel had not recovered from that defeat. Saul and his sons were killed. Israel was fragmented into two kingdoms. They were on the run. Israel is not now a built-up, powerful kingdom. They are no threat to the Philistines. The Philistines are the dominant power in the area. They have nothing to fear from David and Israel. And as a matter of fact, the last direct encounter that the Philistines had with David, he was their ally. You may recall David had hidden himself amongst the Philistines to escape Saul. And when the Philistines were going up to war against Israel, David was actually a part of that army. And God in his grace extricated David from that 
difficult situation by causing a stirring amongst the Philistine lords. And they said, we don't trust this man. Get him out of our army. And so David left the army, but left on the best of terms with the king of Philistia. So there's no reason for the Philistines to attack. And yet they do. And not just a probing attack, but they attack in full force. See what the text says. All the Philistines went up. That means that they gathered up all the men from all of the cities into one large army. The language here is identical to what is used in 1 Samuel 29.1 when all the Philistines gathered themselves against Saul and Israel. So what they intend to do is to destroy David and to wipe out Israel. The hostility is unmatched. Now stop for just a moment and think about why now the Philistines are attacking. Well, the answer might be, well now David has a united kingdom and they feel like they have to attack now. It's now or never. But doesn't that point to the fact that they should have attacked before. They should have attacked when the kingdom was divided, when Israel was weak, when it had a weak king. Ishmasheth was no match for the Philistines. They should have gone against David when he was only with one tribe and against Ishmasheth, the weak king. Why did they not attack Israel? The answer, I think, is God's common grace. God was sovereignly protecting his people during a time of their weakness. It was not a lack of hostility on the part of the Philistines. It was not peace that reigned in the area. No, they instead were stopped by God in his sovereign power, bringing about peace for his people, common grace. This is an important point. Calvin puts it this way. The Philistines did not use the opportunity which was put in their hand. And they did not take advantage of it. And that shows us that they were stupefied in that God held them back. And so it is with the battle today. There are lulls in the battle Times when the enemy is not on the attack against the church and against Christians. But that is not because the enemy is pleased with God. Or because the enemy desires his kingdom to be built up. No, it's because God is protecting his people. And this is something that we must take to heart. Because it is not random chance that protects us. I dare say you didn't wake up this morning... And wonder to yourself, I wonder why the door wasn't broken down and the house not ransacked. You just got up. Now maybe you, like me, think to yourself that one flimsy deadbolt will keep all the world out of your house. I guarantee you that is not the case. The reason why you woke up in safety was the grace of God. That God watches over you. That God watches over our society. That God watches over our nation. We are a nation of laws because of the common grace of God. It's not chance. We are protected by authorities. Not by chance, but because God in His grace has placed them over us. God is sovereign and He protects His people. His common grace is grace that reaches to everyone. Not just to His children. It's not as if 
thieves and robbers walk down the street and say, he's a Christian, can't break in there. He's a Christian, can't break in there. Oh, he's not a Christian, I'll break in his house. No, God protects all by his common grace. God's authority and sovereignty is not just over his church, it's over the whole world. Now there's a second thing I want you to notice about the enemy's attack. There is no compromise here at all. I suppose we could understand it if they attacked Saul. Saul was a brash king who had always opposed the Philistines. But now David is the king. Why would they attack him? You would think now would be a perfect time to find compromise, to make peace. It wasn't so long ago that David was a Philistine servant. As a matter of fact, the last words that the king of Philistia said to David were these in 1 Samuel 29, 9. I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. So why not make peace with David? The truth is that the Philistines are not focused on David. This is not about tactics. This is not about one king being preferred over another. This is about their hatred of God and their desire to serve idols. You see in the text that they brought their idols up into the battle, assuming that their idols were stronger gods than God and that they would defeat God. This is the way it always was. Before Israel even had a king, the Philistines wanted to show that their idols were more powerful than God. And when they captured the Ark of the Covenant and they brought it before their idol, Dagon, they did so to say that Dagon was the powerful God of the universe. But of course, you know what happened. God showed himself more powerful. He cast down Dagon. And we had this humorous series of events where God casts down the idols and the Philistines come and they prop him back up and God casts him down again. And then finally, God cuts off his head and his hands and it is so clear that God is God. That the Philistines send back the ark to defeated Israel. They say, we can't take this anymore. We've been afflicted with tumors. Your God is more powerful than our God. But we see here that they haven't given up their hope of fighting against God. This is what we see all the time in our society. People fight against God. They don't want to hear His word. They don't want to obey His commands. They always think they know better. And even after time and time again, they are shown the folly of their ways in terms of sickness and death and chaos. They still go back to it. Because that's the mindset of the unbeliever. The unbelieving mind, Paul tells us, is enmity against God. And so the Philistines have not given up the fight. They've only paused. And so now they come in all force to destroy God's people. As verse 17 shows, this is a full force attack. And they spread out in the valley, in verse 18, attacking the weakest point of Israel. Now, I've reminded you about this before, and I'll take this opportunity again. If you have a series of maps in the back of your Bible, this is especially a good time to be familiar with them, to help you understand what's going on and where these armies are going and why they're going where they're going. And 
you recall that Israel is spread out from north to south in the northern end of the kingdom. The 11 tribes that followed Saul and his family were found. The southernmost of those 11 was the tribe of Benjamin. And then in the very south, we have the 12th tribe, the tribe of Judah. And you will recall, we looked two weeks ago, that David conquered Jerusalem to make it his capital in the center of the kingdom of Israel. We compared it to Washington, D.C., an independent city that is in the middle of the kingdom. And so it will not surprise you that the Philistines attack in the valley of Rephaim, which is exactly in the area around Jerusalem. They are seeking to divide and conquer. They want to split up Israel. Their hope is to divide the kingdom, and then the new king will not be able to keep the loyalty of the northern tribes, and the northern tribes will be leaderless, and they will pick off the north and the south one at a time. It's an excellent military strategy and so they come now at the weakest point to Israel and we also see that David took this very seriously he goes we are told down to the stronghold in verse 17 now I will spare you 20 minutes of speculation about where the stronghold was if it was Jerusalem or Jerusalem before it was built or if it was the cave of Adullam, or so on and so on. Commentators go on and on and on, because we don't really need to know exactly where the stronghold was. You know why I know that? God didn't tell us. And so we have what we need from God. What we need to know is that David is using his time-tested tactic. He's going where he doesn't think he can be found. He's going to the most defensible position in the area. The problem is, this is not the way to defeat the enemy. This is only a way to delay and possibly survive. Now notice how quickly God's enemies turn on David. You might think, couldn't David have sent emissaries to them? Couldn't he have said, I didn't attack you, can't we just live in peace? After all, he had made common cause with them when he was fleeing from Saul. What's the reason that they have for attacking David now? Well, it's only this, that they oppose God and they want to destroy him. That's what's common to all unbelievers. Some express that opposition more violently than others, but it is true that no compromise with the enemies of God will ever stop them. Psalm 2 tells us that the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against His anointed. They gather together against God. I can think of no better example of this than the last days of our Lord Jesus Christ, as our Lord is brought between three tribunals, if you will. First, He goes before the Sanhedrin, who are the religious leaders of Israel. And then He is brought before Herod, who is a puppet king who is a man stained by sin, a partier of the first degree, who flouts all the laws that the Pharisees hold dear. And then he's brought to Pilate, the soldier's soldier, who looked at Herod as a fool. As a, Pilate was someone who followed the law to a T. But he could have cared less about Israel and its commandments. And yet all of them banded together 
and they had one thing in common. What was it? A hatred for Jesus Christ and a desire to destroy Him. That's what brings unbelievers together. Opposition to God. We need to understand this. No compromise we make with God's word will stop the attacks of God's enemies. This has been the folly of the church for centuries. If we just stop preaching this portion of God's word, then the world will leave us alone. If we just stop emphasizing this part of God's world, then we'll be left alone to do whatever we want. Well, I ask you, how's that working for you in America? Not so well, is it? Did the churches who have abandoned God's word on marriage, on holiness, have they seen the world support them? No. The attack just moves to a different front. We cannot compromise on God's word. So what do we do in the face of such attacks? That brings us to our second point this morning, that the Lord fights for his people. I want you to put yourself in David's place. His kingdom is weak. He has just become the king. Not everyone in the kingdom trusts him. The Philistines are pouring into the valley. They seem unstoppable. At first, it appears that all David can do is go and run and hide. I think that's often how we feel in our culture. It seems that everyone is against the church. That all the power around us seeks to either fundamentally change our faith or destroy it. What do we do in the face of this? Paul wrote that the Old Testament is for our instruction. And that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope in Romans 15.4. That means this text is written for our hope. This really happened. But it happened in the way it did because God designed it to happen this way for our instruction and our encouragement and hope. So we can take hope and encouragement and instruction from what David did and what God accomplished. So what does David do with a weak kingdom and a powerful enemy? He goes to God. Do you see that in verse 19? And David inquired of the Lord. And then again we have in verse 23 on the second attack. And when David inquired of the Lord. David knows that this is God's battle. If it's going to be won, God must win it. What a difference from the way that Saul and Israel thought about battles. They wanted a king who would go out before them and fight their battles for them like all the other nations. Not David. No, David wants God to go before him and fight the battle. David knows what he has to do. It's his duty to fight the Philistines and protect Israel, but he doesn't know how to go forward. And so he seeks counsel from God. Now, it's interesting, you will notice that two times David faces the same threat. The Philistines come and attack in verse 17, and then after they are defeated, they come back in verse 22. And I think somewhere in the Philistines' battle manual it says, 
rinse, repeat. Because that's what they do. They come in exactly the same way, into exactly the same valley, to try to make the exact same attack. In both instances, David knows he must depend on God and his word. And so he asks for direction, and he also asks whether the Lord is willing to grant him success. Now, how does David do this? We have seen this before. You have heard me speak of the Urim and the Thummim, a mechanism that was used to ask questions of God and to get an answer. And we don't really know how it works because the Bible doesn't tell us. And I think sometimes we say, well, why can't we have an Urim and a Thummim? That would come in handy. Should I take that job? Let's ask God. He'll tell me yes or no. Should I marry this woman? Let's ask God. He'll tell me yes or no. Should I move to this city? Let's ask God. We'll get a direct answer. And we think we are the poorer for not having an Urim and a Thummim. But I have to tell you that this was a temporary measure given by God because his word had not been delivered yet to his people. David had but a portion of God's word. The five books of Moses. He certainly didn't have the Psalms he hadn't written yet. He didn't have the prophets. He didn't have the New Testament. He didn't have the Gospels and the story of Jesus' life and ministry. You see, today we have so much more than David had. David would be jealous of you and how much of God's Word you have in your hands. Just having God's word doesn't always provide to us a ready answer. That's why sometimes we want answers written in the sky or God to whisper in our ear. And that's why we need to combine the word of God with prayer. We need to study the word of God and we need to ask God for wisdom to understand what he's telling us. How we are to live our lives. That's what James tells us in James 1.5. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Are you not sure what to do? Search the scriptures. Do you need help understanding the scriptures? Go to the Lord in prayer. Ask for wisdom, and he will give it to you. I think sometimes, because that seems so easy, we don't avail ourselves of it. If God had said, climb this mountain, and then I'll give you information, we would say, okay. But he just tells us to pray. And we think, it can't possibly be that easy. But it is. Because God isn't interested in your efforts, in what you can do. It's his grace that's important. Now notice something important about God's guidance in these two events. We have two almost identical situations. And once David seeks God the first time, we might expect he wouldn't bother the second time. So he seeks God's guidance, and God says, go up and attack them, and we will break through. And then, you can almost imagine, David sees them coming the exact same way, and the temptation might be to say, all right, I, know, I got this, God. We did this before. I'm going to go up against them, and we're going to break through, right? After all, God's going to do the same thing, right? Sometimes we think we have God all figured out. That we know his ways. That God is predictable. But he's not. 
He's not dull and predictable. Now, he is consistent in his character, but he's varied in his ways and his methods. And so the second time David seeks advice, God gives a completely different answer. The result is the same, but the path is different. Now, think about God. Does God create all birds with the same color? Do all flowers look alike? Is every tree the same? Does every animal have the same number of legs and the same kind of fur? No. Why? Because God is a God of beauty and variety. And it's no less true in his ways of preserving his people. Think about how God saves people. Some he brings to himself softly and tenderly. Think about the story of Lydia in Acts chapter 17, outside Philippi. If you were to ask Lydia, how did you become a Christian? She would say something like this. Well, I got up one day, I went down to the river, talked to some peoples, and I'm a Christian now. And yet, there'd be a man in the same town, we read about just a little bit later, a jailer, if you asked him how he became a Christian, he would say, God scared the living daylights out of me. I was in the prison, and the, the jail shook, and all the cells opened up, and I thought I was dead, and then God met me and saved me. Well, there's another person in chapter 17 of the book of Acts. It's a slave girl. And if you asked her how God saved her, she would say, I was under great distress. I was burdened. I was beset by demons. I was a slave to wickedness. And Jesus came and he freed me. Three completely different stories. But yet the same result. And it seems to me that if we asked everyone here how you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, we would find a multiplicity of stories. There would be some common themes, but some would have come to know the Lord very late in life. Some would have grown up in a family where before they could talk, they were prayed over. Some would have had difficulties with drugs or alcohol. Someone would have had a run-in with crime. Someone would have had a friend bring a Bible to them. Someone would have stumbled upon a church. There would be a countless number of ways because that's how God works. He works His will, His way. He doesn't have to meet our expectations. And that's what's happening here. And it's a lesson, I think, for us. How has God met you? You see, Jesus can free you from your sin no matter what your situation is. You don't have to fit into a mold to become a Christian and believe on Jesus. All you need to do is believe on Jesus Christ. That brings us to the final thing that we see. God fighting for His people. We see the power of God. Because the guidance that God gives is only effective because God has the power to bring about His will. This point is something that I think we understand intellectually when things are going well, when events are prosperous. But we need to know this, that God is powerful in times of our greatest troubles. God is able to fight for His people. David knew this. He didn't just ask what he should do. No, he knew that the battle was the Lord's. That's why he said, will you give them into my hand? And God answers 
that he will surely give David victory. And then God shows his power. Look at how David describes it in verse 20. The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. Perazim in the Hebrew means to break through, to burst, and that's exactly what God did. David compares God to a flood that bursts through a dam and destroys everything in its path. Now, when David uses the word flood, I want to take one image completely out of your mind. Do not think at all about Harvey. Because flood here does not mean a constant, steady drizzle of rain for day after day after day after day until the waters rise slowly, slowly, slowly. This is more like the Hoover Dam cracks in half. And the waters rush through it, sweeping everything before them out of their way. Nothing is left. That is the power of God. When God opposes you, He always is victorious. And so, we have to understand that God is a smasher. Ralph Davis puts it this way. He says, God is the smasher, and David names the place Smasherton. That's what God does here. He shows his power. We have a God who is mighty. He is never afraid. He is never unable. He is never surprised. He is a God that we can depend on. Then in the second time, God shows his power in a different way. This time, God advises David to circle around behind the enemy and to come at them that way. And this is good military strategy, but it is only good military strategy because God is the one who's going to make the frontal assault. That's what we read in verse 24. When you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. The signal that David is to attack is to hear that God has gone out. And this verb, gone out, is often used to describe a warrior going out to war. God is the mighty warrior who goes out to war and defeats the enemy. He is the initiator. David is merely following. Do you see God this way? As the mighty and powerful sovereign of the universe, the smasher, the warrior. Too often we have a weak view of God. We see God as pleading with sinners to accept him, but he's unable to do anything apart from their will. When instead the Bible presents us with a God who changes hearts and who drags sinners into the kingdom of his marvelous son. We often see God as being impotent on the sidelines of our lives. And because of that, we think it's all up to us. And therefore, we could fail. But it is not all up to us. God is powerful. He is able. In conclusion, Jesus is described in the Bible as our king. Do you know what that means? If you believe in Jesus, He is not just your Savior. He is your Lord and King. And that means He is able to restrain and conquer all your and His enemies. 
We never need to be afraid because Jesus is always able to lead us in triumph. Victory is assured because Jesus is sovereign. So don't waste your time fearing the world and its plans and schemes. Trust in Jesus. He will guide you. He will protect you. He will give the victory. Let's pray.